Our first scripture reading this morning is Proverbs chapter 8, verses 10 through 20. Hear now the word of the Lord. Choose my instruction instead of silver, knowledge rather than choice gold, for wisdom is more precious than rubies, and nothing you desire can compare with her. I, wisdom, dwell together with prudence. I possess knowledge and discretion. To fear the Lord is to hate evil. I hate pride and arrogance, evil behavior and perverse speech. Counsel and sound judgment are mine. I have insight, I have power. By me, kings reign and rulers issue decrees that are just. By me, princes govern and nobles, all who rule on the earth. I love those who love me, and those who seek me find me. With me are riches and honor, enduring wealth and prosperity. My fruit is better than fine gold. What I yield surpasses choice silver. I walk in the way of righteousness, along the paths of justice. Our second scripture reading today is Second uh, Peter chapter 2. Verses 17 through 20. Hear now the word of the Lord. These people are springs without water and mists driven by a storm. Blackest darkness is reserved for them, for they mouth empty, boastful words, and by appealing to the lustful desires of the flesh, they entice people who are just escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom while they themselves are slaves of depravity, for people are slaves to whatever has mastered them. If they've escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and are again entangled in it and are overcome, they are worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. When people get old enough to have some responsibility, it seems that they almost always try and see just how much leniency accompanies it. This is especially true when someone leaves home for the first time, whether for college or to start working, and it was no less true for me than for anybody else. I'll never forget how, after my family dropped, dropped me off at school, when I was sitting on my unmade bed without any friends or even a roommate yet, I thought to myself, this is adulthood? I know, it seems like Kind of a funny thought to many of you, and it seems like one to me too as I look back. But it was in a way, because for the first time I didn't have anyone close to me who was guiding my decisions. This is a phenomenon that would later be jokingly summarized by many of my friends with the phrase, I'm an adult, you can't tell me what to do. More realistically, though, there's a nearly ubiquitous sentiment that a person's mistakes, especially at that time in their life, are theirs to make, and that nobody else has the right to try and restrict them or prevent them from making it. Well, one day I got back to my dorm room to find my roommate lying awake in his bed, staring at the ceiling at about 2 p.m., this might not be unusual for many college kids, but it was unusual for him, so uh, recognizing that fact, I just had to ask, Hey, is everything okay? No, he said, I completely forgot that I had a test in my nuclear engineering class today. 
I think I did all right, but I just can't believe that I did that. He then went on to give me advice, to tell me to stay on top of my calendar, to check my syllabi regularly, and, you know, just to keep up with things in general. Well, I figured it wasn't me who'd messed up and forgotten a test. I could handle myself in my own business, because after all, I was an adult, and I was free to live as I saw fit. About a, a week later, I was having lunch with another friend of mine, and he tells me that he'd slept through one of his classes and missed a test that he'd forgotten about. He got lucky, and the professor had mercy on that naive college freshman and was letting him make it up for a lower grade. But he was definitely going to learn from that mistake and change his ways. Now again, I felt bad for him, but I ignored the advice that he gave. Because once again, I knew what was best for myself. It was important that I be free to make my own mistakes. I'm an adult. You can't tell me what to do. Now I'm sure, looking at it, you, some of you can see where this is going. Well, a few weeks after that, things were going well with all my classes, and I was feeling pretty good about my performance overall. I was taking this political science class. It was local and state government. It wasn't the most interesting of classes, but it was fine for the most part. I went. The professor was an older gentleman who taught from the most crowded, difficult-to-read PowerPoint presentations that I have ever seen in my life. And that ultimately meant that most students didn't come uh, on, a, on a regular day. Well, one day I walked into that class and looked around and thought to myself, wow, there's a lot of people here. That's pretty good. Maybe they finally got it together. Then I saw that someone was sitting where I had taken to sitting, which led me to go to the seat that I was assigned at the beginning of the semester. I figured if someone was sitting there, at least I could tell them to move. But when I finally reached my seat, I noticed something that made my heart sink. Everyone around me had Scantrons out. I had forgotten a test. Without any other options, I got a Scantron from the person sitting next to me. I dug a pencil out of my bag and I waited as the tests passed around the room, up and down the rows, waiting for one to get to me. Reflecting on that later, I have to wonder what led me to that place. I thought at the time that my refusal to take advice was an act born of freedom the freedom to make my own choices and, by extension, my own mistakes. But now I'm not so sure that that's the case. In fact, I'm quite convinced that it's not. I'm much more inclined to believe that it was because I was trapped by my own laziness and stubbornness. If you've ever tried to break a bad habit, to quit smoking or stop drinking, or even to start keeping a calendar, then you'll know just how tightly our vices hold on. One of the things that absolutely broke my heart during college was watching my friends fall into the I can do what I want trap. And some of them fell in deep. I knew people who enjoying the new quote unquote freedom that they had dove headlong into the bar scene just off campus. What started out 
as celebrating a 21st birthday turned into a weekly binge, then into being friends with the bartenders and the regulars, and going a few times a week, falling in with strangers and letting responsibilities slip. Do you know that statistically some 40% of college students binge drink regularly? Is that freedom? Is that enjoying a fulfilled life? Or is it being trapped by a culture that encourages self-destruction and is ruled absolutely by sensory desires? The truth is there's no freedom to be found in that because there's no freedom at all to be found in sin. What's so often praised as freedom or liberation by the world in which we live is gained by binding our souls and keeping us from the wholeness and holiness that can be found in Christ. Our scripture says it plainly this morning. People are slaves to whatever has mastered them. There's no end to the things that can hold mastery over us. I was mastered by comfort and laziness, and it came up time after time. That test that I forgot wasn't the first example of it, and it certainly hasn't been the last. Since I was a kid, I fell into falling uh, or into finding the easier path, the less complete path, all for the sake of having some more leisure time. But I was also in a lot of ways enslaved by the pride that told me that I was above the mistakes of my peers, that I knew better than they did or than my parents did. Sometimes these things have tangible consequences like having to take a test that you're not prepared for. Oh, but these things always have spiritual consequences. Whether it's anxiety or loneliness or the constant need for more, anything that promises satisfaction at the expense of your relationship with God will always leave you lacking. It's like you come to a door with a sign that says, in here, you can do whatever you want. Excited, you go inside hurriedly and shut the door behind you and hear it lock, only to find yourself standing in a big, empty, poorly lit room. Sure, you can do whatever you want, but ultimately there's nothing there. You can do what you want. But how free can you really be locked in an empty room? Just look at the language Peter uses here. People are slaves to sin, entangled by corruption, and struggle to escape from temptation and enticement. It's like I said before, anyone who's tried to break a bad habit knows how hard it is. This isn't just about picking up after yourself or flossing before you go to bed. It's not even about more serious things like quitting smoking or drinking or drug use. What we're talking about here are habits of the soul, about what you find valuable and where you turn in your search for fulfillment. It's about where you turn again and again when you need hope or joy. And breaking those habits is not just difficult, it's literally impossible. We can't free ourselves from them. Because at the end of the day, our default, where we fall back to, is trusting the things we see and feel, the things we get immediate pleasure from. And the power that those things hold over us is far, far too much 
for us to overcome. There will always be something else for us to turn to, another apparently good thing. But ultimately, ultimately, it's just going from one empty room to the next. The satisfaction and fulfillment will always wane, always need to be renewed and topped off, which drives us further and further in. It's what's called the sunk cost fallacy. The idea that I've already put this much time and energy into something, I can't stop now. But everything that promises freedom, every life philosophy or habit or practice is rooted in the false promise that something I can do or something I can attain will cure my spiritual brokenness and satisfy my soul. And when we believe that promise, we're allowing sin to separate us further from God, who's the only one strong enough to truly save us. But sin is enticing. It strokes our egos and tells us that we don't need God to be saved, that we don't need to be changed to be fulfilled. Peter talks about the lustful desires of the flesh, the ways in which the sin that binds us tempts us to stray from the Lord. You see, we often think of sin as something bad that we do, as something that goes against God's will, and that's certainly true. There's no doubt that there are practices and actions that are not in line with the desires that God has for us. And Scripture frequently tells us both specifically and generally what we need to look out for in that regard. There's another more universal side to sin as well. Some people talk about a sin nature, or in Wesleyan circles of a bent towards sinning, and they're pointing to the fact that something about the world and something about human nature is changed by the presence of sin, so that a thread of sin runs through everything and everyone. That's what makes it so hard to escape temptation. And that's why it's impossible for us to ever be holy or righteous by sheer force of will. Because there's parts of us that, as Peter says, have been corrupted and always want to go back to how it was before. It's only the power of Jesus Christ and the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit that can truly combat that thread and it's only by the grace of God that we can resist temptation. There's a danger that persists even after we trust in Christ and begin experiencing transformation, though. And that's the main thing that Peter is warning about in this passage. He writes, These people are springs without water and mists driven by a storm. Blackest darkness is reserved for them, for they mouth empty, boastful words, and appealing to the lustful desires of the flesh, they entice people who are just escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, while they themselves are slaves of depravity, for people are slaves to whatever has mastered them. It's exactly what made me so resistant to the warnings of my friends, and it's exactly what leads people to so strongly reject those who try to help them. It's a simple truth that people don't want to hear that they're wrong or that they need to change their ways. 
And it's an even simpler truth that they don't want to accept those things. We are masters, you see, at justifying our behavior to ourselves, at forming arguments about why it's okay for us to do the things we do, even if it's wrong for someone else. But the more powerful argument, and in many cases the more appealing one, is that what I'm doing isn't wrong at all. When college kids party, for example, they invite their friends because it's just having fun. It's not a big deal. You can find countless arguments about why promiscuity isn't an issue, or even why it's a good thing. Just look at the pop stars we idolize and celebrate. Just look at the definitions of liberation that we hold. When people justify their actions, they don't just want to convince themselves. They want to convince the people around them because it's easier to accept if more people believe it. People encourage others to join them because it reinforces what they've told themselves. This isn't bad. This isn't an issue. This doesn't hurt me. Maybe even, but this is good. These have strong messages and such big promises, and we've been falling for them since the first moments of creation. Think back to the book of Genesis, to the promise of the serpent who told Eve, God may have said that you'd die if you ate this fruit, but do you really think that he meant it? Oh, you know better than that. Go ahead, eat the fruit, and you'll become like God. We're always looking for new ways to do things, alternatives to transformation, ways to be saved and fulfilled without being changed. But all the while, we ignore the promises of the King of Kings, who's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. We're not strong enough to overcome that thread of sin that runs through our world and our lives, but if we place our trust in Christ, we will certainly find that He is. We look for freedom in so many places, in so many shallow things and fleeting experiences. But true freedom can only come from Jesus Christ, who died so that we could taste the life. Paul says in Romans 6 that in Christ we're set free from sin and have a new pattern set in our hearts, a pattern which leads to righteousness. This is true freedom. We are free from the chains of sin, from those false freedoms that have consumed so much of our time and our lives. And we're free from the chains of death as well. But what I said before and what Peter wrote are still true. Temptation doesn't cease when we come to faith. Yet at the same time, the freedom that we're promised is simply freedom from sin, not from habitual sin, not just from really bad sins, not from occasional sins, but simply from sin. How can both of these things be true at once? How can we be freed from sin while we still feel its pull? While we fight temptations daily? Well, the truth is, it's because of the work that Jesus Christ did in his life, death, and resurrection. And because of what he left for us that we know that with those things, we can overcome sin. First, we can be open to the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. 
we begin this when we first place our trust in Christ, when we believe in him and commit ourselves to follow him fully. But the work of the Spirit doesn't end there. No, it's an ongoing thing. The Spirit is the person of God whom Christ promised us as a helper until his return. So the Holy Spirit is with us then, accompanying us as a helper in our faith and transforming our very souls so that we're being perfected moment by moment. And as that work continues, as we are transformed and conformed to the image of Christ, the everyday struggle against sin begins to become easier. For our part, we open ourselves up to being changed by God when we devote ourselves to good spiritual disciplines and Christian habits. As we study scripture, we learn the stories of people who knew God in special, amazing ways. As we pray, we humble ourselves before the Lord and listen for his callings in our lives. As we fast, we prove again to ourselves that our devotion to God is so much more powerful than the desires of our flesh. As we receive Holy Communion, we share with all the saints who have gone before and with all of the saints around the world who live now, as we eat the body and blood of Jesus Christ, and as we worship together and engage in fellowship with one another, we are strengthened and supported by our brothers and sisters in the faith. It's this last one that's a second way. Christ didn't just leave the Spirit, after all. He left the church. We already said that people try to tempt those around them into sin as a way to justify themselves, but the church is a community that should be committed to doing the opposite. When we go through life together with the purpose of living faithfully, we can encourage and be encouraged by one another so that when temptation comes, and it does, we know we don't have to face it alone. And as Christ frees us from sin, we are by extension freed from death as well. Paul says in Romans 6 that the wages of sin is death. And we know that that's true. In our fallen, broken world, everything breaks down and everything dies. But the promise that we have in Christ is that the story doesn't end there. Death doesn't get the final say. Instead, it continues on into eternal life, with us standing before the Lord and being deemed holy in the righteousness of Jesus, and then ushered into the perfection that God has always intended for us from the very moment of creation. But for right now, for this life, Christ frees us to be holy. With the bonds of sin broken, we can pursue him and his righteousness with our lives in a way that wouldn't ever have been possible before. Jesus Christ, our transformer and our redeemer, has freed us for faithful obedience, and it's a joyous thing to follow him. There are many things out there that promise false freedoms, things which say, do what you want as they lock us in an empty room. But Christ alone transforms what we want and then delivers us into his kingdom, which is paradise. Thanks be to God.
Amen.